This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, uh, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, today, I have the great pleasure of uh, discussing the lead article in this month's uh, issue with Dr. Scott Glazer. He's an assistant professor at the City of Hope Medical Center, Department of Radiation Oncology. And uh, the title of his uh, manuscript is a proposal for a new classification of unfavorable risk criteria in patients with uh, stage one endometrial cancer. Scott, welcome and thank you so much for, uh, for doing our podcast. Thanks for having me. So Scott, I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously I think uh, this, is, this will be a, a very important manuscript for our readers and I uh, wanted to just get a, a sense from you. Obviously this is a, a large study using the National Cancer Database to compare the impact of radiation therapy in stage one endometrial cancer patients meeting different criteria. Um, so tell us why this study was important to you and, and put it in the context of uh, the current clinical practice in gynecologic oncology and radiation oncology. Sure. So as the listeners already know, stage one endometrial cancer is a very diverse patient population. And knowing which patients need adjuvant treatment can be challenging based on current risk stratifications. Um, you know, we have the low-risk subset of patients who uh, surgery is enough treatment in and of itself and they shouldn't receive any additional adjuvant therapy. You know, we have higher-risk patients who we consider fairly aggressive adjuvant therapy, including external radiation and potentially chemotherapy as well. Then we have a more intermediate patients for whom you know, the general practice is largely to offer vaginal cuff brachytherapy alone. Selecting patients into each of those groups appropriately, you know, has some heterogeneity based on the available um, trials that guide treatment decisions. Exactly. So you, in this study, you, you did a, uh, an analysis of risk factors using GOG99 criteria and the PORTEC1 uh, criteria for those trials. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the differences in the risk factors for each of those and, and why this might be important for our listeners to understand? Sure. So GOG99, which as a reminder, had lymph node dissection required versus PORTEC, which did not. GOG99 had risk factors including outer third myometrial invasion, grade 2 or 3 disease, or lymphovascular space invasion. Patients to be considered high intermediate risk, they had to have a different number of those three risk factors based on their age. If they were over 70, they only had to have one of the three. If they were 50 to 70, they had to have two or more. And if they were under 50, they had to have all three risk factors. In PORTEC-1, basically just had to have two out of three risk factors. They were similar. You'd have either outer half myometrial invasion grade 3 disease, so not grade 2, and age cutoff was 60. A PORTEC-1 didn't include LVSI as one of their risk factors. So I think that uh, in, in, in your study, you aim to then evaluate um, a, a subset of these uh, criteria from, from each uh, study. And I saw that certainly there was a, a number of exclusion criteria for, for the study. And before getting into the details of the of the results, can you tell us a little bit about the exclusion criteria 
for the study and, and why you selected those? Sure. So, in general, our exclusion criteria were aimed at fulfilling two purposes. First, we wanted to only select patients who were on endometrioid histology after a hysterectomy, so people who were eligible for standard adjuvant options. Uh, so we excluded patients with metastatic disease, those who didn't undergo a hysterectomy, those with non-endometrioid histology, those with documented stage 2 through 4 disease. Um, after that, we excluded patients with positive margin and those with 1B grade 3 disease. That was because we didn't want people with residual disease as their treatment paradigm would be different. Didn't want to include the highest risk patients, 1B grade 3, as those patients are, are routinely offered external beam radiation and considered for chemotherapy as well. Um, so kind of no therapy is not, not really ever considered a potential option for the highest risk patients, so we excluded them as well. Great. And coming to the, uh, to the results of the trial, I know that you look specifically at the group that had only uh, GOG99 criteria at the group that had only the PORTEC criteria, and then at the unified classification stage one high intermediate risk, as you called it, would you tell us the, the main results of, of your study? And, and particularly, I'm interested in the impact of vaginal radiation therapy in each of those groups. Sure. So, as you mentioned, you know, we looked at patients who would have qualified for GOG-99, but not PORTEC, and then vice versa, patients who would have qualified for PORTEC criteria, but not GOG-99. So, how that happens? Well, for GOG-99, because grade 2 is considered a risk factor, whereas in PORTEC it's not, you know, we had a, a substantial population of patients with grade 2 disease, a risk factor such as LVSI then would qualify for GOG, but they wouldn't have qualified for PORTEC, such as a, um, a 1A grade 2 patient who was over age 60 wouldn't have qualified for PORTEC, but um, if they had LVSI, they would have qualified for GOG. So in that group of patients, the GOG-only patients, see uh, an improvement in outcomes with radiation, uh, on an absolute sense, it was about a 4% improvement in survival, which I could talk about survival as an endpoint in a little bit. Um, whereas in the PORTEC-1 only patients, who are mostly those between age 60 and 70, uh, with one risk factor additionally, those patients we did not see any benefit from uh, adjuvant radiation therapy. So then what we did is we looked at kind of the overlapping and non-overlapping criteria and tried to select which uh, demonstrated the highest uh, degree of benefit on multivariable analysis and include those risk factors into a unified uh, risk, risk stratification uh, grouping. So we included the higher risk grade 2 patients and the lower risk patients between ages of 60 and 70. And that left us with this stratification. Basically, you have to have two or more factors out of the following four. Uh, LVSI, age over 70, grade 2 or higher, and FIGO 1B, or over 50% myometrial invasion. If you two out of those four, then you have 
what we would call is based on this unified definition, high intermediate risk disease. And then we showed that in this risk group, benefit from adjuvant therapy, and even to a stronger degree than the um, either of the groups own, um, based on the hazard ratios. And you mentioned that um, you wanted to expand on the topic of uh, survival. Um, wh what did you mean by that? Sure. So the NCDB, one of the big limitations, and there's several which we can go over, is that the only endpoint available for analysis is survival. So there's no you know, disease-free survival or local regional uh, recurrence data in the NCDB. In you know, stage one endometrial cancer, radiation has never been shown to have a survival advantage in any of the um, cooperative group studies. And there's various reasons why that may be. One of them is the size of the studies. You know, in NCDB, have a statistically significant survival difference with only a few percent difference in absolute survival because we have tens of thousands of patients. Um, in the um, cooperative group studies, which are typically a few hundred patients, you know, even a five or to seven percent difference in survival may not be statistically significant. Yeah, so certainly one of the one of the issues, uh, obviously, w with regards to the uh, NCDB, which, by the way, for our uh, f foreign uh, listeners, is the National Cancer Database, is the issue, as you mentioned, of survival. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, other um, items uh, that are up for discussion with regards to use of data from national databases um, in a little bit. But I wanted to just get back to the point of the unfavorable risk uh, in the mitral cancer patients. You seem to have identified uh, an unfavorable risk stage one in the mitral cancer patients uh, in, in this um, study. And the follow-up question to you would be, if confronted with a patient that meets these criteria as you uh, outlined, what would be the appropriate treatment for these patients? Would it be brachytherapy alone, external beam uh, therapy alone, or external beam and brachytherapy? Going back to PORTEC-2, which compared vaginal cuff brachytherapy to external beam in, in this patient cohort, you know, my practice would be to offer vaginal cuff brachytherapy alone to the vast majority of these patients. Um, maybe one notable exception would be patients with whom the pathologist says they have extensive or substantial LVSI. So there was a follow-up PORTEC publication um, basically quantifying the amount of LVSI into tiers, upper third, middle third, lower third, in terms of amount or extent of LVSI. In patients with the most LVSI, the risk of recurrence both local, regionally, as well as distantly was much higher, you know, with odds ratios in the range of four to six. So those patients, even though we don't have great prospective data, I think they need more treatment. Um, such as external beam or chemotherapy or both. Uh, but for the majority of patients with the risk factors we're discussing today, I think vaginal cuff brachytherapy alone would be a good treatment. Great. And you mentioned in your, in your study uh, that only 43.5% of patients with these unfavorable risks um, actually receive adjuvant radiation. Why, why do you think this might be the case? That's a great question. So there's probably several factors at play here. 
First of all, there are limitations within the NCDB. There's risk for um, bias in capturing the data. Uh, for example, if a patient has surgery at one institution and then goes to a, a different hospital or a smaller practice that's not participating in the American College of Surgeons registry, they may, may not be captured appropriately. Um, so there's some concern that radiation data is undercaptured within the NCDB. Um, there is concern that you know, some of these patients may not be referred for radiation. Um, some patients may not want radiation. They've been told they're cancer-free and that all their cancer has been removed and they may not understand the, the concept of adjuvant therapy. Um, and then there's been a lot of discussion in the radiation oncology world about the declining use of brachytherapy in general because brachytherapy is often only offered at specialized centers or larger institutions um, and requires additional training and may not be a resource that's as readily available to all patients. So you might think that, in fact, that the, the actual true number may be higher than that 43%. So then now getting back to a point you've brought up uh, several times during our, our discussion is the, the quality of the data when looking at national cancer databases. And, and certainly one is left wondering about the accuracy in terms of lymphascular invasion, uh, tumor grade. In fact, even histology may not be so, so accurate. Um, how do you consider these factors impacting the results and the ability to make recommendations based on, on, on these findings? Sure. So I think that's a very valid point and concern and one I'm happy to address. Um, there's no doubt that there's limitations to the NCDB. Uh, we did our best to account for those using a variety of methods, including propensity matching, multivariable analysis, um, elimination of cases with unknown variables, and sensitivity analyses. Um, I think if our you know, findings overall were so controversial that they were hard to believe, I think, you know, we may question them even more. However, you know, the fact that we see a difference in the, quote, higher risk subset of our population, and then we see basically no difference between those who get radiation and not lower risk, sort of validates what we've already known about this, this patient population and just gives us kind of additional granularity in, as far as uh, risk stratification. And that degree of granularity is possible when you have tens of thousands of patients and it's fairly difficult, a few hundred on a, on a trial. Uh, so I don't think our results are inconsistent with what we already know about this disease. It just provides additional insight and clarity. Yeah, and I think also it opens up opportunities for consideration of uh, additional studies. And, and you actually mentioned that further studies are needed in order to validate the findings from this current study in our lead article. Uh, how would you propose the, the ideal study design to answer this important question? Sure. So I think there's several ways to go about this. I, I guess what our study primarily shows that there is a high degree of heterogeneity within the patients who would typically be called higher intermediate risk. If you look at GOG99 and, and PortTech one, patients without treatment, going back to GOG33 as well, 
these patients without treatment would have a risk of recurrence in the 20 to 25% range taken as a whole. But there's definitely subsets of patients within this group that's risk of recurrence is maybe down into the 5 to 10% range, and maybe they don't need adjuvant treatment. Then there's probably patients whose risk of recurrence is up into the 35 to 45% range, and maybe they need more than vaginal cuff brachytherapy. So kind of drilling down on this high-intermediate risk group and really subclassifying it is, I think, where the field is going. There's various ways to go about that. You know, one approach is, is the Portec uh, approach. So Portec 4 was initially prospectively um, uh, uh, observing certain patients, uh, but more recently that trial has switched over to a gratification trial where Patients are being um, uh, binned into different groups based on their genomic scores and offered treatment based on that. Okay, I think we can improve care for these patients. And then another would be to just develop some sort of active observation trial for patients who are at the lower end risk of the of the high intermediate spectrum. So. Scott, our, our, our time is uh, coming to a close, and, and I definitely want to obviously thank you for this, this great conversation and interaction. I want to take advantage of your expertise and, and sort of like a, a, a wrap-up question. In your practice today, which patients with endometrial cancer require no further treatments, which patients require only brachytherapy, and which patients require external beam radiation? Sure. So I'll make it fairly simple. Um, if a patient is 1A, grade 1 or 2, with no LVSI, I universally recommend um, observation. They are 1B, grade 3, or they have extensive LVSI, I recommend external beam. And then all of the other patients basically in the middle, we have a very individualized discussion on their um, risk factors and where we think they're falling on the risk spectrum as far as chances of recurrence, and we help those patients make an individualized decision. Probably the majority of those patients in the middle get vaginal cuff brachytherapy, but there are some that get observation, and there's a small minority that get external beam. And Scott, would you like to make any uh, additional closing summary uh, statements? Um, I'd like to just thank you all for the opportunity, and um, hopefully as a scientific community, we can do better for these patients with early-stage endometrial cancer. Well, Scott, thank you very much. This has been really great. Again, uh, thank you for submitting your manuscript to our uh, journal, and I hope our readers will find it uh, as instructive as uh, we have. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.